This is episode 14 of The Quest. It is the beginning of a new chapter, Being Human. While sitting with Brenda by the burning fireplace late one chilly fall evening in the Rockies, I asked her what she thought should be the first question in a discussion of what it means to be human. She said, I don't know the answer to that, but what I personally would like to know is, what is the difference between me and this black and white cat sleeping here on my lap? Her question is a difficult one to answer because it is no longer possible to use some of the distinguishing criteria we once used to define the difference between human beings and animals. For example, it is no longer possible to make that distinction as was once done on the basis that one uses tools and the other does not, or all depending on who you listen to on the basis of language or, or even of culture. Someone may assert that one has a soul and the other does not, and that that's the demarcation between human beings and animals. But how do we know Alex Goodcat, as the grandkids call the cat that was sleeping contentedly on Brenda's lap that evening? How do we know that Alex Goodcat has no soul or won't go to heaven? It, it may just be wishful thinking, but I rather think he will, and if pressed, could give proof text and theological arguments for that sentiment. I'm certainly not arguing that there is no difference between Brenda and Alex Goodcat, but the difference between us and animals may be, may be more in kind or, or more in quality than anything else. There's a comic strip that shows a huge dinosaur in a canyon with his head sticking up just a little over the rim. A caveman with a huge club slipped up behind him and is poised to hit the dinosaur on the head, and the unsuspecting dinosaur is thinking E equals MC squared. That's funny, of course, because it takes an Einstein, human intelligence, to come up with E equals MC squared, a, a feat well beyond the reptilian brain. It's not just that humans have more brain power, a, a higher level of intelligence, but that they have a higher level of consciousness. Teilhard said, life being an ascent of consciousness could not continue to advance indefinitely along its line without transforming itself in depth. He said, no reality in the world can go increasing without sooner or later reaching a critical point involving some change of state. If we accelerate a body until it approaches the speed of light, it it acquires an infinitely greater nature. If we heat it, it will eventually vaporize. As long as we think of evolution as a simple advance in increasing complexity, we can imagine some sort of infinite 
diversification. But, said Teilhard, what we have discovered is not only an increase in quantity, but also in quality of brains. We have, with human consciousness, he said, reached an event of another order, a metamorphosis that was inevitable. Evolution is obviously a good deal more complicated than it has frequently been made out to be. And human beings are much more than, as the famous French chemist asserted, merely chemical combustion, and that's all. An evolutionary process is not a denial of God, and neither does it leave the human race soulless. We can establish an evolutionary process scientifically, but there's nothing to say that the process is not somehow directed or that it has not occurred within the structure of divine providence. There are evolutionary biologists that are atheists, and there are evolutionary biologists who are theists. Nature can be interpreted in a number of different ways, which means that evolution itself proves nothing about the existence of God one way or the other. A frank and earnest comic strip shows these two disheveled uh, cartoon characters sitting on a park bench, and Frank is saying, So, what's the problem? The creationists were created and the evolutionists evolved. I think that what these two goofy-looking comic strip characters may be suggesting, it, at least this is what I get out of it, is that both the strict evolutionist and the theistic believer are correct. We have evolved, but the evolutionary process itself is an act of God. The atheistic evolutionist has no sense of that, but it is something of which the religious person may be intensely conscious. It is the development of this higher consciousness that makes us fully human, fully alive. One of Robert Frost's wonderful poems is Tree at My Window. Tree at my window, window tree, my sash is lowered when night comes on, but let there never be curtain drawn between you and me. Vague dream head lifted out of the ground, and thing next most diffused to cloud. Not all your light tongues talking aloud could be profound. But tree, I have seen you taken and tossed. And if you have seen me when I slept, you have seen me when I was taken and swept and all but lost. That day she put our heads together. Fate had her imagination about her. Your head so much concerned with outer, mine with inner weather. There are just certain basic questions, questions about the inner weather that go with being human, questions that at various times intrude into our thoughts, 
We want to know how, what, what is going on inside of us, uh, how what is going on inside of us connects, if at all, with what is going on inside other people, especially those close, closest and dearest to us. We want to know where we come from and what is to become of us. We want to know whether we're here by divine and kind intention or are we the impersonal result of some primordial chemical accident? Is the material world all there is, or are we engulfed in a great cosmic mystery that transcends all physical senses, all human thought, all imagination? What is reality like? Is it hot, cruel, and angry? Is it cold, sterile, blank, and indifferent? Or is it loving, alive, and personally benevolent? Is there a transcendent eloquence and meaning to our lives? Or, in the words of a poem I now can barely remember from a high school anthology, do we just stupidly consume corn, fowl, and fish, leave a clean plate, and die. The young Jewish psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, whose wife and mother and father died in the gas chambers the day they all arrived at Auschwitz like cattle in a crowded boxcar, was able to survive the death camp by internalizing the dictum, whoever has a why can survive any how. What is the secret of endurance, of health, of happiness, of spiritual transcendence? It is, from one perspective, simply questioning, understanding, and living the why of life. Christianity is neither a philosophical or theological system of thought. Consequently, it has no elaborate metaphysical or academic explanation or theory on the dynamics of meaning. What it does say is that we were all created for a life of warm, loving, divine intimacy. The spiritual journey is, in fact, a journey into intimacy. Intimacy, as you may know, is from the Latin intimus, meaning the most inward, the most essential, and the most personal. It is what is profoundly interior and real about us. It is, as Thomas More put it in his book, Soulmates, Honoring the Mystery of Love and Relationship, the very within, the withinest. Intimacy occurs when the most inward, the withinest of us, joins with the most inward of another. Many people, uh, perhaps most, I don't know, equate intimacy with sex. And there's good reason for that. As has been said, people don't just mate, they meet. When Scripture describes sexual intercourse as a couple knowing one another, it's not using a euphemism. Scripture is not that prudish. All all real living, uh, Martin Buber said, or um, all real living is meeting, uh, 
All real living is an encounter of persons, and sexual intercourse is one of the most profound ways one person can encounter another. That's why sexual infidelity represents a betrayal that that most marriages cannot survive. Sex, regardless of how abused and distorted by our postmodern world, is never just about sex. When ancient societies developed religious rituals of cultic prostitution and drunken orgies as part of their temple practices, it it wasn't just an attempt to make the earth, livestock, and people more fertile. It was also a longing to experience transcendence. Some of the poetry of the medieval Christian mystics is really rather erotic, That's because they were searching for language that would uh, express their longing, their yearning for communion, for intimacy with God. I could say that the meaning of the Christian tradition is to be found in a personal relationship with God. Yet the word relationship is too general and lacks both sufficient depth and passion and, and I would also say and warmth to capture what the saints and mystics have tried to tell us through the centuries. What we could say is that while Scripture provides us with no philosophical or academic perspective on the dynamics of meaning, it is quite clear that when we are conscious, when we are conscious of loving God and other people, and when we are conscious of being loved, we have found the spiritual way and are living the meaning of our life. The English mystic Evelyn Underhill said this. She wrote, Our whole life is to be poised on a certain glad expectancy of God, taking each moment, incident, choice, and opportunity as material placed in our hands by the Creator, whose whole intricate and mysterious process moves toward the triumph of charity and who has given us each and who has given each living spirit a tiny part in the vast work of transformation. Love, or charity as Underhill calls it, although essential for a life of meaning and happiness, is not a complete philosophical answer to life's purpose. At the same time, it it must be said that intimacy or love does answer the central questions of philosophy, the, the, the great basic questions of philosophy. You may know the funny story about the great German philosopher Schopenhauer. He had, he had locked himself in a hotel room for days working on some complicated aspect of his uh, of his uh, philosophical system finally he decided to take a break he left his room and went to a nearby park where he was sitting quietly on a bench when a policeman came by who are you where did you come from what are you doing here where are you where are you going demanded the officer to which schopenhauer replied soulfully i wish i knew Scripture says love is the answer to all those questions. In a, in a Beautiful Mind, the film version of the life of the great 
mathematical genius John Nash, who suffered from schizophrenia, Nash says in his acceptance speech of the Nobel Prize, Love is the solution to every equation of life. Love is the solution to every equation of life. The first epistle of John says, God is love. If you believe that, and if you believe God is the ultimate source of your existence, then you believe each of us comes from love. The first chapter of the Ephesians letter says we are to live in love to the praise of God. So to quote the poet William Blake, and we are put on earth a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. The epistle to the Romans says that nothing, nothing seen or unseen, nothing imaginable or unimaginable, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. Christians, then, believe they came from love, that they are here to love, and when they die, that they go into love. Again, to love God and others is the meaning of life and the source of all genuine happiness. Of course, you'll have to discover that and live into it for yourself in your own daily existence and experiences. <laughs>